Hello, and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, let's drink the wine and discuss the harvest. Yes, let's. Let's grab a glass and uh, discuss uh, some secret equations on the chalkboard, perhaps, as well. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, if you're joining us here for the first time, we have over three years of spy movie reviews and interviews to dive into. So make sure you hit subscribe to keep up to date with the spy jinx. And if you enjoy this episode, please consider leaving us a five-star review. But, Cam, I think it's about time we uh, brought in a guest. I think so. Indeed. Here to teach us that secret formula to spy podcasting. He's a historian and a curator of the world-renowned International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., and the host of the SpyCast podcast. It's Dr. Andrew Hammond. Hello, sir. How are you? It's great to be here. I'm, I'm doing well, thanks. It's also it's very often we have people that are smarter than us, but it's not often we have people that can have that have a doctorate to prove that they're smarter than us. So I appreciate you being here to really class up the joint. Wait, wait until we've uh, finished the podcast before you get raise the bar too high. And um, I, I think before we get to mentioning the film and getting into all that jazz, let's get to know you a, a wee bit better. I mentioned the Spy Museum. I mentioned Spycast, but Taking it back a little bit, you know, you've got a doctorate, but what prompted you to want to be involved with sort of spies, whether it be in film, in TV, in history, because you've got all these things going on with the Spycast podcast as well. Sort of what's that, where's that interest come from for you? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And I think it comes from two places. I think one is like a lot of kids had a childhood fascination with espionage, with spying. So I remember, uh, you know, I used to practically live in our local neighborhood library. Mm -hmm. And I remember getting this one book on spying uh, and it gave you some some like tradecraft. One of them was hollowing out a book and using it as a secret compartment. So I remember getting a copy of Peter Benchley's book Jaws and cutting out some of the inside of it. And then it was on my shelf. And there was some there was some kind of titillation or victory in knowing that I was the only person that knew that that was a secret book. I mean, there was nothing of particular secret <laughs> interest or value inside it, but still, it's knowing something that someone else doesn't know. This is part of the allure of of sp- spies and the spy genre as a, for for people that watch the films. So that that was one technique that I picked up, and another one that I picked up, which was pretty cool, was. So you've got your your chest of drawers, your dresser. Uh, if you pull the drawer out a little bit, and then get a pencil and mark underneath where how far the the drawer has been pulled out, then you can find out if your parents uh, or your siblings have been going through your stuff. So, actually, I found the book really good for running a counterintelligence operation against my parents. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that <laughs> so that that's one part of it. But the more serious part goes back really to nine eleven. So, I joined the the Royal Air Force back in the UK in nineteen ninety eight. Uh, I was in the photographic uh, branch, intelligence and communications branch. I spent some time doing photographic intelligence. Uh, and while I was doing that, 9-11 happened, then Iraq happened. And 
I think for me, I just felt like an actor in a play who didn't really understand the plot. You know, it's almost like being in a movie and no one's giving you the script and you're just you're just improving and you know, this is this is kind of the nature of life, right? But I just wanted to understand at a deeper level what was going on in the world. Like how did I you know, my, my role in these events was utterly insignificant. You know, I'm not I'm not putting myself at the center of this story at all. My role was and my role was insignificant in the story of nine eleven, but nine eleven and the story of my life was was quite powerful because mm. why why would people fly planes into buildings and murder innocent people i mean it just on the surface level it just like why would someone do that it doesn't seem to make any sense so i just went on this journey to try to figure out what was going on in the world and that led me to going back to i left the service in 2005 i went back to school i ended up doing a ba an ma a phd then some postdocs um and then quite fittingly I ended up at the 9-11 Museum in New York City for a couple of years on a, on a postdoctoral fellowship. Uh, and every day I would sit at my desk and in ground zero, I could see the two huge uh, holes that were left by the North and South Tower. So in some ways that was the journey coming full circle. But, you know, just to bring this back to your question, in 9-11, it's been called an intelligence failure by some people. The Iraq War, obviously, we had WMD. You know, and, and the more you look into it, the more you see that at every critical juncture in history, intelligence is involved. It's just quite often we don't know as much as what went on compared to, say, let's think of the First World War. Well, there's actual trenches that you can go to walk through. You can see helmets and guns and so forth so is that that that's like on the surface but the secret side to say world war one that that's more difficult to discover so at every juncture i think in history there's intelligence has played some role sometimes it's a it's a supporting actor sometimes it's it's the the, the main player almost and um, we can think about america's entry to world war one the zimmerman telegram we can think about pearl harbor we can think about the battle of midway so the Battle of Midway for, for the United States, that allowed a smaller and less experienced US Navy to defeat the Japanese. That was, that was intelligence. So I just became really fascinated in how the world worked. And I like the, obviously the stuff you can see on the surface, but maybe this goes back to this childhood fascination. I'm interested in what happens underneath. I'm interested in what happens uh, under the surface or that sometimes is in plain sight but we just don't see it for what it is so that's how I really got pulled into that world uh, I had the job at the 9-11 museum I was in academia for a while uh, then I had a fellowship at the library of congress and the job came up at the spy museum and they were looking for someone with a little bit of intelligence experience uh, a doctorate in diplomatic history and some uh, intel some museum experience so i managed to tick all the boxes and for better or worse they have me and they're not getting rid of me <laughs> so <laughs> you could say you know what you're talking about uh, i mean <laughs> i mean it's always like a, a spectrum right but yeah i mean I've, I've i've just spent an unhealthy amount of time reading and thinking and researching this stuff so you know yeah there's certainly things that I know more than the average person on the street about. 
Well, we've talked to, you know, podcasters, we've talked to authors, we've talked to people that host, you know, YouTube shows on, you know, spy history. I'm just curious, though, someone who's working in a spy museum, what is sort of the duties of that and the challenges of the job? Yeah, great question. So the duties, the, the best way to think about this is just breaking them down by function. So quite a lot of it is researching, organizing and communicating information. So I'm kind of on source almost to be a resource for the museum. So can you can you make sure that this is true? Can you fact check this? Can you do more research on this? Can you um, establish whether or not this actually happened or or didn't happen? Uh, how far can we go in a statement? So so that's the, the probably the more general level. When you break it down by function, you're talking about the collection. So at the heart of most museums is the objects, the things that people come to see. So I will research them. I will help to interpret them. I will um, just it, it, think about ways in which we can develop the artifacts that we have, the objects that we have. Then if you go to exhibitions, I get involved in exhibitions. And, you know, the, the way to think about this is an exhibition is almost like a constellation that you see in the in the sky. So the objects are the individual stars, but they can be arranged and, and interpreted in a whole variety of different ways. You know, you can see Orion, you can see the big chair. Uh, so the exhibition is almost making a constellation out of out of a variety of stars. And then the other part that I that I really love as well is hosting the podcast. Uh, I know I'm probably preaching to the converted here, <laughs> but one of the one of the great things about podcasting, uh, besides a whole variety of other things, is just for the host. It's like every week I get a one-to-one -one tutorial with really interesting or smart people who know what they're talking about. Uh, so for me, it's just at, at heart, you know, I think like even the most eminent professor is really just a student at heart. They're just trying to learn stuff. So for me, it's, it's, it's great. I just get to learn stuff every week. I get to ask interesting questions. I get to meet some really cool people. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, CIA directors, uh, GCHQ directors, um, you know, people that have been involved in movies, directors, actors. So it's very, very cool. I, I, I really enjoy it. Um, and then other things that I do are like media work. So quite often, so let, for example, the Chinese spy balloon. Mm. So I was asked to comment on that, not because I have inside knowledge of Chinese government policy, <laughs> but because, <laughs> uh, but because, you know, at the museum or as a historian, I can place that within a deeper historical context. So here at the museum, we have an area that looks at aerial reconnaissance, aerial intelligence. So from pigeons to planes, to satellites, to drones, to uh, U-2 spy planes that go up at twice the height of a commercial airliner, they're all variations of a theme. They're things that go up in the sky to try to gather intelligence. The spy balloon is actually probably the oldest one that's in existence. So people were perplexed. Why would you use a, a very analog technology in the modern age? So there's a number of ways that you can approach that. Um, 
for example, the 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 utility of a spy balloon is that it can stay for a good period of time over an area. So it took quite a long time to travel across the United States. Whereas if it's a plane, you know, a plane's like a shark; it can't stop swimming. It has to keep going. Uh, then there's also plausible deniability that's involved. So it's a civilian weather balloon. What is it? Well, if we if we think about it logically, if we would look at other civilians' weather balloons, we know actually that it's almost certainly not a civilian weather balloon. But but part of the the spy game is sometimes is keeping up the pretense, even if both sides know what's going on. If you can just keep up the pretense, then then that's th- th- there's something going on there that I think is very interesting about intelligence and espionage. Whereas if you've got a Chinese pilot flying over the united states you can't really keep up the pretense you know there's a chinese plane in our skies with a chinese pilot wearing a chinese uniform you know there's no there's no grayness that you can work with there uh one has far more intent than the other one yeah and 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 this is one of the interesting things about espionage it's a kind of it's a gray area you know the whole cliche the the wilderness of mirrors for counterintelligence and so forth. Um, so I just think it's a really fascinating space. Uh, and yeah, just to bring all that together, that's one of the final things that I do. Comment on comment to the media, to newspapers, to TV, but it's generally, if not always, placing things in a historical context. So let's just try to understand this by looking a little bit at its history and how it got to where it is. Yeah, which in a a much smaller scale and a far less qualified scale, we, we've been trying to do with spy movies by covering the entire spectrum back to when they started in the you know the twenties, all the way to now, a hundred years of spy movies, and and you know let's not just talk about the Mission Impossible's and the James Bonds. Let's talk about tonight we raid Calais from the nineteen forties. You know, strange films that people haven't heard of, but it helps you get an idea of why this genre has changed over the years. Speaking of that genre, and um, I note that you're sort of talking about your genesis with espionage, didn't really mention film and TV too much. So my final question for you is, what's your favorite spy movie of all time? Oh, good question. So, yeah, so you're right. So the movies at TV weren't really part of my, they're not what pulled me in. Mm. But, I mean, I had always been fascinated by them independently. I remember as a kid sitting watching uh, Thunderball and just being absolutely mesmerized by the underwater scenes. And I never understand why it gets slammed so much. I just think that it's an incredible movie. Uh, You know, like you sit there on a Sunday afternoon as an adult with a couple of beers, as a kid, and just put on Thunderball. I just think Emilio Largo is one of the most underrated Bond villains of all time, I think. I think, uh, you know, the underwater scenes are incredible. There's just there's just so much going on in the movie. So, so I have always loved the Bond movies, but I think that now, if you were to say to me, what's my favorite movie? I think it would probably be the Tinker Tailor, well, we could go movie. If we're to go say just moving image, I would go with Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the one with Alec Guinness, mm-hmm. sort of nine episodes or whatever. Right. I think if we're to go for a movie, I would probably go for something like um, you know, The Good Shepherd or maybe something like uh some ones that I've enjoyed recently have been The Courier on Oleg Penkovsky and uh Greville One. We actually had the director uh, on on the on our podcast a, a couple of years ago, 
So I, I know they're not, you know, you guys know more about this genre than me. I know they're they're not considered like classics of, you know, the, the genre or whatever, but they're from my era um, and they're bloody good movies to just sit mm-hmm. and uh, enjoy. I mean, The Good Shepherd, you know, you could analyze that in all different types of ways and, and kind of pull out things that are going on in there. And obviously there's a healthy dose of fiction in there, but you know, I just think it's a really good movie in its own terms. <laughs> no, for sure. And I think like you can get lost in the wilderness when it comes to sort of the spy action films. But I think that a lot of what is actually makes spy movies great is the stuff that doesn't involve explosions. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. I don't know. Um, but I think it's time we talk about this week's film. And it's interesting because we bring on someone, yourself, Andrew, who has all of these credentials about real life spy activities. And we choose a completely fictionalized story. Cam, what do we have? (laughs) We are tackling 1966's Torn Curtain, directed by Alfred Hitchcock and starring Paul Newman and Julie Andrews. Now, we've had a very good run so far with Alfred Hitchcock films. Mm, Yeah. Very good run. Notorious, 39 Steps, The Man Who Knew Too Much, both versions. It'd be interesting to see what everyone thinks about this one in a minute. For those of you who haven't seen Torn Curtain, here is the synopsis. Torn Curtain. It tears you apart with suspense. Mm. During the Cold War, an American scientist appears to defect to East Germany as part of a cloak and dagger mission to find a formula for a resin solution. But the plan goes awry when his fiancée, unaware of his motivation, follows him across the border. That one I like. That's a good synopsis yeah. there. That's a that's a film I want to watch. <laughs> <laughs> now I, I I am curious. Uh, sorry, I just want to add you before we get sort of our previous experiences with the film. I mean, I'd never seen this before. I'm sure Cam has, and I will bring that back to you in the second Cam. Yeah. But Andrew, you also have experiences, maybe not with this film, but Alfred Hitchcock's work as a whole. Um, what are your sort of thoughts on him as a director and his spy films generally? I mean, I think if you were to, you know, I was saying to you my favorite movies there, like The Good Shepherd, The the Good Shepherd, The Courier and stuff. But I mean, if you were to push me and I was in a, I was in with a group of, you know, grad students on film studies or something like that, I I would probably start gravitating towards the Hitchcock uh, movies for, you know, best spy movies. So I think that for me, what is it he has like? 53 movies 12 of them are on espionage or uh, intelligence in some shape or form so that that that, that's like quite a large percentage of his work and he's you know by the time torn curtain comes along in 66 he's already you know made his name in the like 30s i think it is as the like you know the master of suspense right and that all comes from like 39 steps the man who knew too much um sabotage all all those kinds of movies so yeah he has you know besides being a legendary director he's a legendary director in this particular genre and I, i actually came across something a while back and it was saying that most people approach hitchcock as hitchcock the auteur so you know it's all about Hitchcock and his entire body of work. But it's actually quite interesting just to look at Hitchcock's spy movies to place Hitchcock as a director within the history of the spy genre. 
Mm-hmm. So not not just as not as Hitchcock wholesale, but as a spy movie director. So I just think that there's so much going on there. I mean, that could be a podcast that lasted for the next ninety nine hours. Uh, <laughs> but you know what an inc- what an incredible director and what what incredible movies. Well, you just think like the Bond films that started a few years before this took a lot of their sort of uh, bits and bobs from North by Northwest. Yeah, like that really is kind of the start of it all. And this film, which I think Cam will get into in a minute, is really the answer to the first few Bond films. It's like Hitchcock's reaction to From Russia With Love. Um, but Cam, I did sort of ride over you a second there. What was your first experience with Torn Curtain? So Torn Curtain was one of the last ones I saw um, of that period of Hitchcock. Uh, there's still a couple of the early works. What I've always found inspiring about Alfred Hitchcock is that a lot of people look at him and go, genius i could never ever do what that man does but when you watch like his first decade or so of films you very much see someone who's like trying to figure out how to make them like it was not a born genius it was someone who through effort and experimentation found his voice and that's something i always found very cool about him but um i bought the the, uh was that the sixth jason Bourne film there born genius (laughs) that's right that's right it was yes um (laughs) And I had bought the Universal DVD set back in the day. And there was a couple in that box set that were kind of regarded as mm, the lesser Hitchcocks or the forgotten Hitchcocks. And those are the ones I kind of got to last. And Torn Curtain fell in that sort of category. And I remember watching it and having some issues with the pace. And I only saw it the once. So I was genuinely interested to watch it again because it had been... Ooh, maybe 10 years, maybe a little bit more since I'd seen it the first time. Okay. Okay. I think that uh, that sort of air about it being a, a lesser known Hitchcock or a lesser discussed Hitchcock, I think will come back up again in our discussions in a little bit. But Cam, I, I want to throw it back to you again. I'm interested to know how this uh, draping got distressed. <laughs> so at the time of when this movie would have been happening, you know, Hitchcock was in kind of a weird place. Psycho had been a massive hit, very much put him back on the map as the, one of the biggest directors in the world. And he had had a couple, I don't want to say bumpy, but just like follow-ups that, while great, weren't as commercially received to the level of Psycho. And those were Marnie and The Birds, two movies that people were generally hold up as masterworks at this point in time but in the 1960s people were you know eh, a little mixed on them and so he began to get a little bit like nervous how to recapture that audience attention he got from psycho so he was developing three projects he was developing one it was an adaptation of the play mary rose which was a supernatural drama a film called r r r r not to be confused with RRR. <laughs> the sequel that we um, never got. Okay. Yeah, exactly. The prequel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, which was about an Italian immigrant coming to America. That was an original um, concept. Is it not a pirate film? R. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and then the third was an adaptation of the book, The Three Hostages, written by John Buchan. And this was a Haney novel. So it would have been oh. a delayed sequel to The 39 Steps in some way. Wow, okay. Better than the Kenneth Moore one, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this was going to be Hitchcock's 50th movie that he oh, was wow. going to be making. Okay. So I think there's a bit of pressure. It's like commercially, he doesn't feel ultra confident. It's his 50th movie. And so he decided ultimately on this project. 
And what happened was he was inspired by the 1951 defection of English spies Burgess and McLean from the Cambridge Five. Um, perhaps, Andrew, do you have a bit of background on these individuals? I, I do, yeah. We look at the Cambridge Five at the museum. Uh, we look particularly at Kim Philby, but he's almost the, the Russian doll at the center of the Cambridge Five. Uh, and Burgess and McLean, of course, it's Philby that tipped them off. Uh, so there's there, there, there's lots to dig into there in terms of the history of, of espionage, and especially during the Cold War. Yeah. And so Hitchcock, you know, had been following the events of Burgess and McLean defecting. And his main thought was, what must Mrs. McLean have thought? And that was sort of the germ of what inspired this movie. I like it. I like it. And he was very aware of the James Bond boom. So what he was looking to do with Torn Curtain was to showcase the dirty side of the spy world. He wanted to make something that was contrary to James Bond. And he was looking to do something kind of in the vein of Notorious and had absolutely zero interest in Cold War political themes. He emphasized this to his writers. <laughs> and it shows. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, so he commissioned a script from writer Brian Moore, who was an Irish novelist and screenwriter. Um, he'd had a couple of his books adapted into movies, 1958's Intent to Kill and 1964's The Luck of Ginger Coffee, which was directed by Liquidator director Jack Cardiff. The legendary Jack Cardiff. Who could who could forget <laughs> the Liquidator? It, it, I often do get emails saying, "When are you going to do more Liquidator coverage?" Of course, exactly. That's a joke. That's a joke. That's never happened. <laughs> <laughs> but primarily, Brian Moore's work. If you look at his filmography, it's mostly his you know novels being adapted into films. But he did um, write the screenplay for a movie in 1991 called The Black Robe, uh, directed by Bruce Beresford, that got a fair amount of acclaim. This was his debut screenplay, though. So he really was not practiced in terms of writing screenplays and went through several drafts. And ultimately, Hitchcock brought in the writing pair of Willis Hall and Keith Waterhouse, who were just a duo that were veterans in the industry, began writing British TV in the late 50s and just cranked out TV scripts, uh, did the odd movie. They wrote the 1961 Haley Mills thriller, Whistle Down the Wind, and also the Guy Hamilton World War II film, The Winston Affair. But primarily TV, and they were brought in after several drafts from Moore to punch up Torn Curtain. And they did that uncredited, but if you look up the history on Torn Curtain, they are constantly referenced. Like, they were seen as a very important part in sort of getting the movie across the line to a screenplay they could use. It's it's funny, you're already throwing shade on the initial writer. It's like, it's his first film, total novice. What an amateur this guy is. <laughs> what a hack. All right. And and was it was it Hitchcock? I may be getting this wrong, but was it Hitchcock that said, you know, someone said, "What's the key to a good movie?" And he said, "Script, script, script." Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm. But but he's not happy with the script for this movie, and I think around this time he comments that you know it's very difficult to find a good writer these days or something like that. Yes, and poor guy. It's so weird, poor guy. I... <laughs> <laughs> and it's so weird because we think of like Hitchcock as the master of suspense. Apparently, he was like quite insecure at this point in time. Um, he wasn't certain about the movie, but they had to rush it into production because Julie Andrews was going to be busy. And Universal wanted her really badly, and also Paul Newman. And there was also an issue that like Hitchcock was very much nervous about his box office standing and was basically taking notes from Universal 
and ceding control of the project to basically try to create, try to engineer a box office hit with them. That seems so counterintuitive for Hitchcock, the man who at this point had done basically all of his hits. I know. I know. It just shows you, though, like, anyone can get imposter syndrome, right? <laughs> That's true. Uh, and so uh, through the production, Hitchcock was not a fan of Paul Newman, uh, largely stemming from unclassy behavior at a private dinner. And also Newman sent him a three-page memo of notes on the script. And also Paul Newman was a method actor. And Hitchcock had no patience whatsoever for method acting. <laughs> I mean, I got I got Andrew's memo before we did this. It was 20 pages front and back about how he wants to be treated on this podcast. So I know how Hitch feels, man. It's, it's tough. Yeah, thanks for the camel milk for my bath after the show. <laughs> how are those green M&Ms doing for you? Yeah. Well, I, th I think it's quite interesting, um, you know, like thinking about this in the history of of cinema uh, and and thinking about the the various people that are in it. So Julie Andrews comes off of the back of uh, Mary Poppins, wins an Oscar for it. Mm -hmm. Then The Sound of Music, which surpasses Gone with the Wind to become the highest grossing movie in cinema history. So she's just, she's at the, the height of her power, so to speak. Hitchcock comes off of Vertigo, North by Northwest, birds and psycho so he's he's just made i think what most people consider his greatest movies but torn curtain is really his star on the wane he only makes is it two or three more movies after this yeah uh, and none of them are really ones that people <laughs> remember um but then paul newman he's he's a bit different because he's to me he's sort of like halfway between both of them because he's coming to this from um he's coming to this from so so previously he's known as for cat on the hot tin roof and the hustler so they're kind of like big movies right he's like a known name he's like a big star but i think that some of his best work is still in front of him cool hand look butch cassidy uh the sting those types of things and uh, so, so, so you've got those three people who are really important for the history of cinema. They all collide in this spy movie, Torn Curtain. So, so that's one thing that's interesting to me. And then, as you say, the it's like almost a generational clash uh, on the set, right? Hitchcock is used to dealing with, um, you know, Cary Grant, you know, Sean Connery and, and Marnie, you know, that older generation, Jimmy Stewart. But then he's got Paul Newman, you know, his chest out quite a lot in Torn Curtain. He's a method actor. I read that he said to, uh, he asked Churchill, what are the, what are my characters, like inner motivations? And he said, like, your main motivation is money, getting paid to do this <laughs> bloody movie, you know. <laughs> and it reminds me of a, a, this. I don't know if this story is apocryphal or not, but uh, for the movie Rain Man, uh, it dustin hoffman like ran around the block so that he could actually be out of breath and and Lawrence olivia said to him what the hell are you doing and he's like you know i'm i'm i'm, I'm getting character you know i'm out of breath and Lawrence olivia says have you ever heard of this thing called acting yeah <laughs> so there's this kind of generational clash going on in the movie as well i think yeah that's that was marathon man and... oh marathon man sorry that's right yeah not rain man <laughs> Yeah, that was always one of those legendary stories. Did it actually happen? I don't know, but the story is amazing. So print the legend, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
And because in this film, Paul Newman and Julie Andrews were so expensive, the studio decided to skimp on a lot of the production. So they hired like a very cheap German crew to shoot all the background plates, which will explain maybe some of the dodgy backgrounds in this film. And also, um, Hitchcock had had this long collaboration with Bernard Herrmann, who'd done a lot of his best scores, North by Northwest, Psycho, Vertigo. And he hired him to write a very poppy score for this movie. The idea was, it's the 60s. People are really into the kind of these pop music kind of scores. So we'd like you to do that. And Bernard Herrmann handed in a very moody, depressing score. And Hitchcock had to basically cut him. And so that was the last of their collaborations, the unreleased score of Torn Curtain. And he brought in John Addison instead. Had had uh, Herman been watching the film, like watching dailies, and that was what inspired him for the sort of moody and depressing? That is an excellent question because I actually, yeah, I agree with you. Like when you watch the movie, I think it seems like kind of a slow burn kind of moody thriller. I don't think It's a of, contemplative thriller. Yeah. Like it's not, it's not a, it's not You Only Live Twice. I don't think of like the Wrecking Crew, like bop, bop, bop kind of music yeah. playing under yeah, this yeah. thing. Yeah. Mm, weird. Yeah. And so the movie was a modest success. It had a budget of $3 million. Domestically, it did $7 million. International numbers, uh, it's 1960s. It's very tough to track that information. The top three for the year, number one, The Bible in the beginning. Number two was Hawaii, the Julie Andrews film. And number three was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And it's notable this was a big year for the spy craze. You also had coming out this year, Murderer's Row, Our Man Flint, Funeral in Berlin, The Deadly Affair, this is like right in that post-Thunderball explosion of these types of movies. So, yeah, big time to be putting out Torn Curtain as a spy film. And it was successful for that. And my final note was actor Ludwig Gon- uh, Donath, who plays Lind in this film. This was his final kind of major film. He died of leukemia the year after the release of this film in 1967, at the age of 67. And... uh His only other spy credit that would come out after this movie was the packaging of the Man from Uncle film, The Spy in the Green Hat, released in 1967. I will note, you listed all those spy films that came out this year, but you missed the most important one, Ken. Oh boy, okay. I'm sure this is a joke, so now I'm racking my brains as to what was the like bad spy movie we covered from 1966. Uh, You're going to have to let me know. Involves a sandwich? A sandwich? Oh, the listeners are screaming it in your ear right now. It's Dr. Goldfoot and the Girl Bombs came out this year too. <laughs> they weren't screaming <laughs> in my ears. They were just screaming. <laughs> in the cinemas, yeah. <laughs> yeah Quite yeah. right. Quite right. Well, I think we should all uh, get inside the basket and try to sneak over the sort of Berlin Wall here. Torn curtain time. Let's talk about it. Andrew, you're our guest. You go first. You've revisited the film for the show. What do you think about Torn Curtain? So I think that the takeaway is, so I watched it last night. I had seen parts of it in the past, but I watched it last night. So I think for a Tuesday evening, it's actually not a bad use of a couple of hours. Uh, I think that, you know, would it be, ta- if, if, if you can only watch a dozen movies this year, would you put it in the list? Probably not. But if you're just looking for a good Hitchcock movie to watch, and to be titillated and to see, you know, the old master, we, you know, bring out a few of his tricks and and see what he can do with 
Julie Andrews and Paul Newman as opposed to, you know, Ingrid Bergman and uh, Cary Grant, then I think that it's it's worth a watch. I think I would probably, if I was to rank it out of 10, I will probably give it like six or something like that. Mm. Uh, so it just depends on what you're, you know, maybe it's because the, it's the genre that you're happy to watch it regardless. If your interests are a bit broader, then maybe your level is a seven. I only watch movies that are a seven or above. Maybe if you're a Paul Newman fan, as as I am, you would watch it because of that. So I think that there's lots of reasons to watch it, but it's certainly, you know, no one's going to make an argument unless I'm drastically wrong <laughs> in this podcast that it's, you know, Hitchcock's greatest movie or, or really any of their greatest movies. I, I don't think you're uh, in the right place for that. I think it might be a very different opinion from the two of us. I did think you were going somewhere completely different with your statement at the beginning, though. Because <laughs> you, said, you said it was a Tuesday night, you know, kind of put it on. I just thought, like, he's tired from work. It's Tuesday night. I thought you were going to say you fell asleep halfway through. Honestly, no. I thought that's where you were going with that. No, no, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. Um, okay, so that sounds like you're going to give it a thumbs up. A six or seven out of ten is a pretty good score as far as films go. Cam, I'm interested to hear from you, Mr. Hitchcock fan. What do you think of Torn Curtain? So I'm not going to lie. I went into this one with a a little bit of dread, just because my experience watching it the first time was just, it was pretty underwhelming, where I walked away from it going, okay, that's probably going to be more or less a one and done. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't have a lot of interest in revisiting this one the way I do with a lot of his other work that I'll just keep going back to. I actually found my experience watching it last night much more pleasant than the first time, but the issues became clearer to me i think than the first time it was just kind of like boy this movie just never ends does it whereas like this time it does feel like kind of when you watch a hitchcock movie especially the ones that just feel so refined to the core of what he does best you know whether it's north by northwest or psycho they feel just like driven by inspiration from beginning to end and this one like i can feel like so much with the behind the scenes talk about the insecurity he had like it doesn't feel as inspired as a lot of his work. There's a lot of scenes where I'm like, it just doesn't have like the Hitchcock energy that I'm used to. But it's like there's sprinkling throughout of moments that when we talk about like likes, I'll have a lot of sequences I can talk about. And so it's sort of like this movie that keeps kind of like lulling you into a, boy, not a lot's happening. And then it'll like goose you with like, oh, wow. Oh, wow. He just came to life and I am riveted watching this sequence but it doesn't feel like he has found like a really strong way to string the sequences together like he does in his best work. There's a lot of like talkiness, and that's typically not one of his strengths. He's such a visual filmmaker and a, an emotional filmmaker. You know, when you think of the suspense and like how he can have you just filled with anxiety in his work, he seems to be struggling with that here. Like a lot of what it is is driven by kind of like an intellectual concept. It is a mathematical formula that Paul Newman needs to retrieve from this you know um east uh, east berlin uh, scientist it doesn't feel like hitchcock has a good grasp on how to make that ultra compelling and i think he struggles throughout i like the idea of the romance between the two and how that informs the story having kind of the shifting pov of her seeing you know her fiance joining the the soviets versus like him trying to get her out of there. That's a great idea. I think the problem is you have zero romantic spark between these two leads. And I'll talk more about that later. But overall, I walked away from it, I think with more appreciation. And there was some sequences that I will revisit where I was like, wow, I just, I didn't realize at the time I watched it the first time how 
alive he was in specific moments. But overall, I just think it's it's a frustrating late career package. It's it's like you can kind of hear him butting up against himself. Like he he's definitely trying to struggle to get over things in this film, and that really was what I had to deal with. Now I didn't have that experience you did, Cam. I wasn't coming back to it. I hadn't seen bits of it before, like Andrew had, and then coming to it as like a whole piece. I've just sat down and watched this two times in a row over the last two days, fresh, yeah. no perspective on it. I'd heard rumblings about it being both good and bad, so I had no sort of real vision going into it. What I found was myself becoming increasingly frustrated throughout this film. You know, it's it's got so many great things going for it. There's some amazing scenes like Cam said that I want to get into as well. Yeah, you've got Hitch at the you know, the peak of his fame. You've got, you know, Paul Newman and Julie Andrews, names that I think anyone knows. These are the top of the top class creme de la creme of actors that you want in your film. And have such an intriguing story that I'd love to see more from. And yet, none of it sort of just sort of forms into a united, amazing film that it could have been. I just felt this lack of potential, a sort of lack of achieving its own potential, I should say, throughout the film. And it just kept frustrating me. It never sort of reached the sum of its own parts, nor did it ever exceed them. And so I was like, well, that's a shame. That's a real shame because, as I say, there's moments where I, like Cam said, it's goosing you, I think, as Cam said. I love it. And I go back to them, you know, standing around or talking and it's like, oh, boy. And it has this real, like, uh, I think Cam has mentioned this before, uh, the Return of the King style endings where it ends about three times. Yeah. And it should have ended the first time. I will just say that. Maybe we'll come back to that in a minute. But yeah, frustrating is my takeaway from it. But there's a lot to enjoy, which I think brings us over to the likes. And I want to celebrate this film a little bit. So j- just on the the kind of, you know, the two-sided, uh, dim- you know, dimension to this movie. So I dug out a couple of reviews, one, one mm. recently uh, on Slate, and I think this captures some of what you were describing, Scott. The, the headline of the review was, it's not a total disaster. So, <laughs> <laughs> what more does a filmmaker want than that? Said exactly. About their work? <laughs> exactly. And then, and then I, I found one from back in the day at the time the movie came out, and this is in the New York Times. Uh, and the reviewer says, "Mr. Newman goes at it really as though he meant to pick a German scientist brain, and Miss Andrews is like an English nanny who means to see that no harm comes to him." <laughs> and I, th- <laughs> I think that, that you know that is perhaps a bit harsh, but I think it just attests to the fact that the two of them do look a bit out of place, both in the movie and with each other. There's a, you know, I mean, just looking at it on the surface, like watching it last night. I mean, by any yardstick, those are two <laughs> good-looking human beings. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a very aesthetically pleasing thing to look at. Um, but there's just no chemistry between them whatsoever. Uh, which is, you know, the, yeah, I don't know. I guess I just expected more from the two of them with each other, but they just seemed they seemed out of place in the movie and with each other. I think the problem is, is like Julie Andrews, Mary Poppins, Sound of Music, like she is very much a mainstream audience-pleasing star who is very accessible to an audience and she's fun to hang out with. Paul Newman is very insular. He's coming out of that method school where it's so much about reading into the deep emotions going beneath the surface of his characters. 
these are not two things that belong together. <laughs> One is a very, <laughs> I think, giving actor. Julie Andrews is just very giving of her scene partners. Whereas I think like Paul Newman is like, focus in on what I'm trying to get across in this moment. And it just is a very weird dynamic for a romance. Well, this is one of the criticisms that's made of method actors, right? It's like, I remember someone said that De Niro's never done a great love scene. And it's partly because he's lost in his own interiority. He's too in his own head, thinking about the the motivations and the the drives and impulses of the character. So he's not he's not kind of connecting at that level with a love interest or something. So, I mean, that's like a whole separate argument, but I, I do think that you see a little bit of that with Paul Newman. And I wonder as well, because she, she, um, Hitchcock is there for the birth of cinema and then through the early days. And a lot of the movies then are, you know, it's almost like the theater sort of spills over and trans and, and, and kind of, reinvents itself in cinema and then later on you have you know all of you know method actors and you know tarkovsky and all you know all of these people that are that are kind of going off in a different direction but people like hitchcock and even uh, bergman and so forth they're very much it's like a play that's been modified for the 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 movie and I think that plays like method acting just doesn't come across on very well in a play. You know, it's all about a, a very slight gesture to the camera. It's about them seeing a particular emotion in your eyes or written on your face. If you're in a theater, like they're not, the audience is not going to see that. So I feel like Hitchcock comes out of that and works better when he's with actors that, that get that a bit more. And I mean, I mean, of course, like Paul Newman, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, you know, he, it's not like these people had never been in the theatre, but I just think that there's a different, I think that Hitchcock works in an, uh, an older and different version of of, of theatre that, that you see coming out of early Hollywood. And I think that people like Cary Grant and uh, Jimmy Stewart, I think are, you know, two of the, the great examples of those types of actors that, you know, are just of a different generation. Again, it goes back to that generational class, uh, clash, sorry. And I think it's notable too, like Hitchcock worked with Montgomery Clift on I Confess in the 50s, and Montgomery Clift was a method actor as well. But it's notable that uh, he worked with both Clift and Newman once. He did not go back for <laughs> round two. So, I, I really want to know what sort of method acting De Niro was doing on Bad Grandpa. You don't want to know, Scott. You don't want to know. Mm, that's, a, that's a whole other podcast as well. I think we'll save that for someone else. But no, let, let's celebrate a little bit. Let's have some joy in this for sure. And let's find some things that we like. Andrew, you're up first. Something you liked about the film. So, there, well, I thought that on the whole, again, it was a six. But I thought that there were some real gems. There were some real scenes that, that will stay with me. So one is, is at the very end, the women in and furs and diamonds she's she was actually a ballerina in real life and she plays a ballerina at the end of the movie who's shouting americanisha spione you know american spy uh i won't give the plot of the movie away i don't know if that's what you normally oh no, go ahead sure. oh go ahead yeah yeah <laughs> oh nuts so, so 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 basically this leads to the the east german guards shooting this these boxes that they think 
Julie Andrews and Paul Newman are hiding in, but they're not actually in them. But I just think that she's she's quite an arresting figure because you think of the bleak, you know, greyness of East Germany and and the set and the the humdrum drudgery of life in a communist country, and then you've got this like fabulous woman with diamonds and furs, a real prima donna, but she supports the system and she's you know there's american spies capture them so that stood out for me and i think that that actor she's really she's got a really arresting face i think that she's just one of those people that you stop and you and you notice and you look at i can mention a few but i'll just stick to one for now so i thought there was some really great little nuggets in the movie well, I just love the the prima donna because it's set up earlier. Like at the beginning mm-hmm. of the film, you've got your lead stepping off a plane, or well, not quite at the start, but close to, and the prima donna's coming off first, and she thinks the press are there to see her, but exactly. it turns out they're there to see Paul Newman, and she gets oh oh screw face and walks off, and then you see her sort of towards the end, and then is she thinks she will be the downfall of them because she craves attention. That's that's where it's coming from. There's a nice little setup and payoff there. I like that. And she's at that party as well at a certain point. Mm-hmm. Like she's kind of like throughout the course of the movie she just keeps popping up it's really good setup and then continuing and there is a great payoff but not the payoff she probably expected (laughs) (laughs) no she just gets ignored again unfortunately exactly yes yes yeah and her character is foiled ultimately no and and i think sort of continuing andrew's like in and just we mentioned i think cam and i both said it's maybe we should also talk about it is just some great moments from the film because i have some other likes i want to bring up but like for me the thing i will certainly not forget is the the death of the east german agent gromach like i just think his his murder as it were prolonged five minute sequence of of slowly beating someone up to death and then throwing them in like the the oven to finish them off it's played with no music in the background it's brutal like the knife breaks in his chest both trying to strangle each other and i know hitchcock did this to sort of take a shot at Bond how easy how how not easy it is to actually kill someone although I wonder why Hitchcock knows that but we'll leave that to one side <laughs> um but I just love seeing that well, I love I, I really enjoy seeing that on screen because it's that sort of grittiness that I think the film struggles to achieve at other times because there's some tone problems with the film as well but that moment in isolation I think is fantastic I think like for me Gromek was my like MVP of the movie played by uh, mm-hmm. Wolfgang Keeling this character has so much menace. It's almost like the Peter Laurie character. Like I, you could see down. him. Yeah, yeah, you could see him playing that character. And like that subtle element of menace that just operates underneath the surface of the movie every time he walks on screen and you know throws out his kind of amusing quips about his knowledge of America, but like there's always this kind of veiled danger to him. And I love that this scene that you talk about is just like an explosion of it. And you can see that Hitchcock's pushing kind of the limits of what you can get away with in a movie. Like to have the knife stuck with all the blood coming down, that's not something Hitchcock could have done in a film, you know, 10 years earlier. You see him kind of pushing that envelope a bit and he'll do it even more so in things like Frenzy in the 70s. Um, To me, that sequence is the reason to watch Torn Curtain. Just absolutely incredible. And the way they kind of escalate, yeah, as you said, from knives to shovels to the gas um, furnace. I mean the movie just comes to life. And to me, I'll kind of jump off of that. Some of the other sequences that really worked for me, I have a lot of problems with the finale Um, Mm -hmm. in terms of the pacing and the number of sequences. 
but there are two of them for me that I thought were fantastic. One is the bus escape Boom. with kind of the ticking clock of when the other bus is going to reach them or potentially pass them. And how there's all these little obstacles and you can feel Hitchcock's sense of humor coming to life mm -hmm. when there's like the older woman who has to get on the bus because they've now got to make proper stops because they're being escorted by the military. Really funny stuff and also suspenseful. Probably should have been the ending of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote that down. It, that should have been the exact end. They get past the border and they do like, oh, they shake hands and off they go, and you get that little photo scene. But that 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 build up and the the bus slowly getting closer in the sort of rear projection they're using at the back of the bus set is great. And all the sort of things that get in the way, the obstacles, and you've got like the the German lady on the bus as well that's constantly shouting at them, saying, "You're making us late," and "What are you doing?" And I I loved all of that because it's the tension that Hitchcock is great at doing, and that is. I wish there was more of that in the rest of the film, to be honest with you. I think it was like, to me, it was like a little bit like watching Italian soccer. Like there's long moments of just, they're passing the ball, they're passing the ball. <laughs> you know, there's not much happening. It's like a game of chess. You're just like, oh, you know, it's going. And then all of a sudden it's like, holy smoke. Did you see that? Like someone just hit a 35 yard three kick free kick and it just went into the top left hand corner of the net holy smoke uh, so it's just like long moments of 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 kind of relative flatness punctuated by just really amazing scenes and i think that the death scene is great and one thing that i loved about that is the the woman who at the very end is dragging the the uh, east german guard or uh, stasi guy over to the oven and you just the camera will go up and look at her and you see the grimace in her face and she yanks him and the and the body and the camera move and you almost feel like hitchcock is moving you even mm. though you're just sitting on your ass watching the movie like he he really makes you feel like you're put, you're caught up in that struggle to get this person to you know drag them over and put their head in an oven so i just thought that that was like really just in incredibly well done and i think that he you know he makes it uncomfortable right paul newman yeah. at this point is going purple you know there's you know yeah i think if he said you know he says that he sets out to provide a corrective to this like in spy movies you know you have one karate chop and someone hits the deck and they're dead well he de he definitely proves his point, you know. It goes on and it's a bit uncomfortable, but you really feel like you're caught up in it, or at least I did. So I thought that that was I thought that that was the thirty five yard free kick that went into the top left hand corner of the net. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the way he shifts POV too to make these sequences so effective. And the other one I was just going to mention was honestly the theater sequence. It's one too many sequences in the finale, but. Again, when you have them sitting in the theater, they're watching the play, and there's the uh, security and the military coming down to check people each row, the way they build that ticking clock and have the Newman yelling fire, and the way they stage the people being dragged in separate directions in a crowd, incredible filmmaking. Like, that could be the, like the, you know, the finale of any movie, and you'd be like, what a fantastic finale. This movie has like three finales which is maybe a problem, but you can't really argue with the staging of the specific like, high points of these sequences. I, th I thought that that was an incredible scene as well, where the, the, the crowd is like swaying and they're caught up in the crowd and people are going in different directions and they're really, Paul Newman's really struggling to get to Julie Andrews. So 
I just thought that that was like so well done. But again, as you said, it's just like it went on and we thought it closed, and then it went on a bit more, and we thought it closed, and it went on a bit more. But that was that was another great scene. I thought I did have a small bugbear with the uh, orchestra opera scene, and that's that uh, Paul Newman shouts out "fire" in a German-speaking audience, and <laughs> "fire" isn't their word for fire. It's isn't "fruer." It f- yeah. Fire. yeah. Yeah. Which uh, it's not, uh, yeah, it's not quite fire. I mean, I get it. Like, if someone screams during a very silent crowd, you'd probably be like, "What's going on?" But it, it'd be like me shouting it out in, I don't know, you know, uh, Spanish in Japan, and expecting everyone to be like, "Ah, fire!" Like, it wouldn't make any sense. But it, that's a tiny, tiny, tiny thing. I'm sure the uh, <laughs> German version that played in theaters in the '60s uh, had that properly dubbed over. <laughs> Well, I, I think that, that this is quite interesting as well because um, when when I was doing my undergraduate degree, I'd, I'd done some research and wrote a paper on freedom of speech mm. and shouting fire in a theatre is actually one of the classic um, analogies that's used in debates about freedom of speech. So Oliver Wendell Holmes, a Supreme Court justice in the United States, he said that you know, freedom of speech stops at shouting fire in a theater and causing like a mass panic. That's not that's not freedom of speech. You're you're harming other people. So this is, I, I don't know if Hitchcock knew of this reference. I'm guessing he maybe did. It's re- you know not super well known, but known by certain people in the state. So I, th- that's quite interesting to me. Shouting fire in a theater. That is literally the example that Oliver Wendell Holmes used about the limits of freedom of speech and that's the one that people will use in the contemporary debates and uh about the limits of the freedom uh, the limits of freedom of speech i want to highlight something else apart from sort of individual scenes and that is not only the main cast i think the main cast don't have great chemistry and probably not in the right films but the supporting cast of this film I think deserve a tip of the hat. Uh, we mentioned Gromek, the the sort of East Berlin guard, but you've got a few. You've got Professor Lint who, who pops in and gives a very strange performance that you don't forget. And then my favourite, although you could have cut all of her scenes out and it wouldn't have mattered, uh, Lida Kodrova as Countess uh, Kaczynska, who she is... Great. She's great. It's just a weird energy for like 20 minutes trying to get an American sponsor. <laughs> I, it woke me up, I have to say. Like, I appreciated the energy coming into the film because Paul Newman and uh, old, uh, what's her name, Garth, my top of my head, Julie Andrews, weren't giving me quite as much energy as uh, the Countess did in her 15 minutes of screen time. The Countess creates a little world in this like just isolated scene that you're like, wow. You know, you hear so much about like, you know, there's no such thing as like small parts, only small actors. And like this woman creates an entire universe and you suddenly have all this insight into her motivations, that moment where she trips the guard and you know, like her life is over. She's going to be arrested and probably sent to prison and she's Mm -hmm. weeping over her sponsor. You're like, Oh my God, this is like a heartbreaking mini movie happening in the midst (laughs) of this like two hour espionage caper. It's on one hand, it's like completely out of place. And mm. completely destroys the momentum of the finale. Because there's a part where she's going on and on about the sponsor. And it was cutting to Paul Newman's just <laughs> indifferent look. <laughs> and I was like writing in my notes, like, I kind of understand where Paul Newman's coming from right now. <laughs> but at the same time, in isolation, it's fantastic. And I was also a big fan of, fan of the Lint character. And that scene where Newman is 
basically trying to trick him into revealing the secret formula on the blackboard by playing to his ego. And it's a sequence that when it started, I was like, how does this even work? Where I'm watching two people on a chalkboard writing mathematical equations. I'm like, oh boy, you have lost me. Uh, mm. But I do think like there is that level of one-upsmanship and just like the way that Newman tricks him. And I love actually the moment where Lind realizes what he's done and Newman is just like completely ignoring him. He's just sitting there staring at the board, memorizing what's on it. As Lind is like, wait a second, wait a second. And going to like phone for security. And I love that pause of just Newman staring at the board. Yeah, it, it, you know exactly what he's doing because you're in on, in on it. But you're actually then like sort of hearing the professor's sort of gears going in his head as he's actually now figuring out this is an enemy agent, basically from his perspective. And, you know, because he's got those subtle cues before, like the, the school grounds are trying to find him and stuff like that. And it clicks eventually. And you see that sort of betrayal, which I think is great. Um, the only other like I have, which I'll just, and maybe I'll throw it out for anyone else's interpretations and opinions, is just I think the story is quite intriguing. And I think if this, if, of all the films I've seen of Hitchcock so far, this is the one I think I would most like to be seen remade. Mm, right. Maybe delivered differently without three endings, but I think this whole like defector double agent story to try and get nuclear, you know, codes or whatnot, you can change the things in the location. It can be Russia or something like that if you wanted to modernize the story. But I think the nugget of the story and sort of seeing this is almost like a Bond film from the Bond girl's perspective for the good sort of the first act at least. And I love that. That's sort of the Spy Who Loved Me book style of seeing this, you know grand spy story from someone else's perspective i really liked that well it's like what was the point of gus van sant remaking psycho remake one like this where mm. it's like you have genius in there but it's not refined to a completely successful you know whole yeah i was just going to say i, I think that the the scene where they're both writing the theorems and equations and so forth on the board for me that was really fascinating just thinking about it as a historian because so much of the history of the Cold War was basically a, a, a struggle and a war between physicists and mathematicians. And, you know, it was the appliance of science. Uh, the Cold War, in some ways, was a massive research and development contest. Uh, and this is, you know, the trying to get, trying to harness people's brains so that you can build, build better or more efficient uh, or, 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 or some to build something that gives you an edge in the Cold War contest. So I thought that that was, you know, I thought that that was a really nice scene in and of itself. But I thought that, uh, you know, you could extrapolate that out to be the struggle of the Cold War. Even, even the Manhattan Project, you know, the struggle to get the bomb uh, before the Nazis, and then during the Cold War, it was theoretical physicists, uh, mathematicians, and so forth that were really leading the you know the arms race in many ways because they were the people that were coming up with the technology and the and the workarounds and so forth that would allow it to happen mm. and now they're having films made about you know by the time this is out oppenheimer would be out in cinemas i think and you know that is getting a whole three hour of christopher nolan film yeah so yeah and, and there's another there's another one coming out uh this summer on ted hall who was in the manhattan project and it's called the compassionate spy uh and yeah they're that that that's coming out so you've got the oppenheimer one who's obviously the, the you know the leader of the project but then you've got i think the youngest person on the project ted hall i think he's like 20 years old and he actually leaks a lot of the 
um, a lot of info, a lot of intelligence to the Soviets to help them in their effort to build the bomb, which obviously comes along in '49. So I think that this is these are good examples, as you as you say, a, a three-hour Christopher Nolan treatment, mm. and then another one, a compassionate spy. Now I think uh, before I take us over to dislikes, just throwing out quickly, is there any other likes people want to mention at all? Um, I like the sequence where Paul Newman and Julie Andrews are having like the disagreement. And you're seeing it entirely in silence as people are observing it happen. Uh, I thought that was actually really effective. And then you cut into them. Basically, uh, the audio kicks in of their you know, conversation. You realize that they're basically spilling the beans as to exactly what's going on. And they are on the same page. But I love the way that's staged. I, I do love that scene, but I do feel like it was all a complete set. And it just felt like a set. That really bugged me about that. I I I think I like I really liked Paul Newman's uh, fashion in the movie. Uh, I remember he he would have on like a, a a crisp, classy white shirt, a burgundy tie, a blue uh, suit. You know, he 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 was dressed sharp. I mm-hmm. thought that he I thought that he looked good. I also thought it was not necessarily a like, but I thought it was interesting that Julie. Andrews at this point I think she's only 32 but she seems I don't know if she's made to look older or if she just looks older and then she's also very much not the Hitchcockian blonde you know the icy blonde she's she's something different that's a good point actually yeah and in terms of like I think they were trying to make her look a little I don't know if it was older it was like we need to make her look like a physicist whatever that means or like a scientist and that's like hitchcock's interpretation of what (laughs) that that looks like that could be the reason yeah (laughs) i just also wonder if it's like you have julie andrews coming out of mary poppins and uh sound of music this is the 60s it's a little bit of a different era they are not going to make her look you know hitchcock sexy like there's just no way that the studio would allow that well i read before that uh hitchcock originally wanted even marie saint Mm. after her term in uh north by northwest to come back for this one right so that would fit into that and i'll note uh, andrew points out that how well dressed paul newman is of the three of us this is an audio podcast but of the three of us andrew's the only one wearing a dress shirt that is true <laughs> very true we interrupt this program to bring you a special report calling all agents keeping the lights on at spyhards hq ain't cheap and frankly nor is feeding the school of attack piranhas so we need your help roger that scott only at the spyhards patreon can you gain access to exclusive shows like Agents in the Field, which tackles non-spy films starring your favorite spy icons, and The Debrief, where we channel our inner solitaires and predict how the big spy movie news of today will impact tomorrow. So make like a Treadstone agent and activate your Patreon membership at patreon.com slash spyhards today. Cam, tell the people what we have in our sites this week. Well, Las Vegas Celebration Month continues, and we are taking a look at a movie that's more than a little unusual. I'm talking about 1996's Mars Attacks. Strap yourself in for this one, folks. Akak, akakak. Ak, ak. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy chinks. Well, there you go. Let's uh, head on over to dislikes. It sounds like we have a few to discuss. Andrew, you're up first. Give us a dislike. Okay, I dislike, I think that, I mean, just to go back to it. Oh, in fact, can I sneak in one more like? Go for it. You can it. sneak it, you can yeah. sneak it. So the, the bit at the end in the theatre where everybody's rushing out of the theatre and there's this amazing shot where 
Hitchcock is at the top of a, or the camera is at the top of a stairwell. It's looking down the stairwell. You know, if you imagine a yeah. stairwell with, say, eight flights of floors, and yeah. then you just see the people snaking around the and holding on to the to the railings, snaking their way down to the bottom. And I just thought that was really that was a really nice angle, and it really brought. I don't know. It was almost like a painting by Hieronymus Bosch or something, where you see people descending into different regions of hell or something like that. But I just thought the way that they were snaking down was like a really nice shot. Yeah, it's like Hitchcock, you know, just such an amazing visual imagination. And I feel like there's less of that in this movie than some of his other work. But those moments still really pop when they do happen. Crazy that when he's firing on like no cylinders, he's still getting shots like that. Yeah, exactly. Like in a movie nowadays, if you had one shot like that in the movie, people would be celebrating it. And he's just kind of like throwing them around randomly in this movie. And people are like, you know what? This is not good enough. (laughs) Well, Andrew, you are the spy experts. You did sneak in a like, but I have to press you. What's your dislike? My dislike. So uh, again, I was just really disappointed in the, I think the pacing of the script, it just, it, it wasn't, it wasn't like the Hitchcock that there had been like previously. It's just, I know that he had frustrations. I know that he shopped it around different people trying to whip it into shape. But I just, maybe this goes back to the point that uh, you made earlier, Cam, where it just doesn't feel like he's fully invested in the, you know, it seems to me that in the past he had an idea, he had a vision and he ran with it. And and in the end, after several decades of refining his craft, like you said, it wasn't, you know, just genius that was sprinkled upon him when he was born. After several decades of the craft, he was just capable of taking a project, running with it, getting towards his vision. And the end result was just, you know, just amazing cinema, amazing movies. But it seems like with this, it was almost like he's just like, Give me a formula that you think is going to be a box office hit. Okay, we've got Julie Andrews, we've got Paul Newman, we've got this, we've got that, but it's just a bit discombobulated. And I think that the the pace of the script, at some moments it was it 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 was good to be trapped in that scene in the theatre where everybody's struggling to go one way or the other. I thought that it was good to keep you there for like a like a few moments. Uh, I thought that the death scene, it was good to be kept there for a few moments, but there were other places where, you know, we should just really have been <laughs> spared the the uh, the amount of time that we had to spend in particular places in the movie. So I just think that this that the pacing of the movie was a was a big dislike for me. I think there's a weird combination I think going on where when you look at like North by Northwest, it is assembled out of set pieces and it's very much carrying you by the seat of your pants and you can sit there if you have a second and be like wait a second would this really lead into this happening but because the movie's so confident and exciting and energetic you're just along for the ride but then you get like hitchcock doing something like the birds which has this kind of like real slow burn kind of apocalyptic ending to it where it's very slow methodical and it sucks you in you can kind of see the energy of where the zombie movie would uh, come from um you can understand how that was kind of ground zero for kicking off that whole zombie concept in the way he's staging the birds ending this to me feels like he's trying to mesh the two things the north by northwest espionage caper stuff 
with the slow burn tension of like the finale of the birds. And it's like these two things are just butting up against each other. You cannot have a slow burn last half hour of this movie where it's like these really dynamic set pieces, but with long, you know, shoe leather is the best term, walking from one place to the next to get into the next sequence. They should be running. I remember when they made um, Star Trek 2009, Red Alert, but like one of the ways J.J. Abrams increased the tension of what people typically thought of as boring Star Trek was to have the characters running down the corridors of the Enterprise because it was like you were suddenly running along with them in like a tense situation. This movie needed people running, not slowly ambling from one station to the next. And I, I thought that just on that point, I think that it was a little bit like fusion cooking that a fusion cooking recipe that didn't work. You know, like you were saying, the birds and uh, North by Northwest. That it's just it's just two two cuisines that just aren't fusing together in in this particular instance. And it's interesting talking about the pacing because. Like I studied this course on ancient <laughs> ancient Greek tragedy. Clearly, I you know had nothing better to do with my life at the time. <laughs> but <laughs> but the, but even two and a half thousand years ago, they had this technique. I think it was called stichomythia, where in a play in a tragedy, you know the plot would be going along, and then as a way to just like like quicken the pace and bring it all alive again and 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 kind of ratchet up the tension there'd be these really short like spats between people where they would just like throw barbs at each other and you would throw one barb and it just sort of it just sort of lifted the pace of the movie up and then eventually it could relax again and go back into it so i just think that the the, the distance between those bursts were were, were just too long it, like you say it's sort of ambled on for a slow burn and then we had a set piece and then it ambled on again and it just yeah just the, the overall effect was just disjointed and the pacing i thought was was a bit off it's weird you know you know hitchcock said he wanted this to be the sort of antidote to bond or or anything like that you look at the ipcris file that came a year before this that is what i'd say is closer to the antidote for bond not that i'm a big fan of the film but i acknowledge its place um but you know I didn't know the antidote was boredom. <laughs> that's that's so strange. One year before this, the spy who came in from the cold, yeah, which is also very much like kind of the dark side of of spycraft. Great movie. Um, I think for me, in terms of dislikes, I'm gonna save one for Cam because I think it's what Cam's gonna mention. I'm gonna go for. I think there was far too much use of bad rear projection mm. and too much use of sets now hitch is known for not liking on location shooting we spoke about that in our man who knew too much uh remake episode but yeah there's some scenes here i mean the 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 scene where they're having lunch where it's basically wall-to-wall rear projection they, they couldn't just set a bunch of tables up with some glass <laughs> in the background i don't know i know there's a low budget in this film but by golly that it's so blaringly obvious. And the thing is, I'm not I'm not saying people were going to Hitchcock films in the 60s for high spectacle. They were going for high drama. But you compare this to films that are coming out in 1966, and you mention, you know, it's 1966, is, uh, you know, if we're talking about the uh, Matt Helm films, you look at the first two Matt Helm films, they looked better than this film. And this is an Alfred Hitchcock film compared to a Matt Helm, Dean Martin film. Crazy. Well, I mean, you just look at Thunderball coming out like a year before this. You're on location in the Bahamas. It's beautiful. 
And here, you're that scene you're talking about where they're at lunch and the backgrounds are wobbling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're like, oh boy, oh boy, this looks rather creaky. And there was like a funny anecdote I, I didn't mention in the behind the scenes, but like Hitchcock kind of made overtures of like, I'd like to shoot this movie in East Berlin, but you know what? We couldn't make it happen. And then I believe it was like someone in terms of like the film industry over there was like, no, it could have been done. <laughs> he just didn't really bother. <laughs> he wasn't really putting any effort forth. He was like, eh, Some cares? would argue that's the problem with this film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Hitchcock liked his controlled environments. And I think even in that lunch, I could argue maybe he's doing that for audio issues. Who knows? But I think it's because he wants control. He wants to be able to focus on Newman and Andrews playing off each other. He wants to position them as he wants them. He does not want to deal with all the crowds around them. No, that's that's fair. But there are ways to mitigate those sorts of things. And there are better just, for sure. <laughs> yeah. He just wasn't prepared to do those things. And I think it was to the detriment of the film. And the sets. I mean, there were so many random rooms of white wall you know, paint on the walls of brown tables that I just lost count of all these different sets that sort of merged into one. Now, that could be to do with the decor of East Berlin. I don't know. But yeah. it was pretty drab at times. And even when they were like, you know, you look at the bus, for instance, that was just a bus with, they weren't driving that outside at any point. It was all rear projection. And so it just felt very stuffy. Mm. And I, this is not a globe trotting film, but they do go to quite a few locations. And I'm surprised you don't sort of get to see it a bit more. Yeah, there is a real drabness to the movie. And I think that's largely intentional, mm. given kind of the subject matter and the, some of the locations they're going to. And then you have, like, say, like a moment where the countess shows up and she has that really colorful, yeah, like scarf, which really pops. Because I was like making notes, like, boy, Hitchcock typically makes very visually dynamic movies that I just want to stare at, whereas a lot of this one looks kind of drab. But then it becomes very obvious that by design he wants that because he wants like that, you know, that uh, handkerchief. He wants Julie Andrews in like that red dress. He wants things that really stand out to kind of show kind of the the color amidst the drabness. But it does feel like a bit of a slog sometimes when you're just staring at drabness for long, prolonged periods of time. I will say, though, we got to see more of Copenhagen than we did in The Wrecking Crew. And that was set there. That is also true. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but Cam, I think there's uh, you know one large elephant left in the room to tackle when it comes to dislikes. Is there, Scott? Because I was thinking my main dislike was the romance, but we kind of covered that up front. What are you thinking? Oh, it was the chemistry. I thought you want to dive further oh. into that, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, we talked about that just in terms of like the issues of two different acting styles just not merging well. But like, I think it's interesting you mentioned Eva Marie Saint, who I think has kind of like a carnal quality, and especially in North by Northwest. And you look at that scene that kicks off the movie of Paul Newman and Julie Andrews in bed together. In 1966, that should be, you know, a little spicy. Like, that's not something that Hitchcock would have been able to do in the previous decade. And boy, it is just like actors reciting the phone book together. Like, you have no sense of kind of like the sexiness of this. It just doesn't work. And I think that if that's the way to kick off your movie, we talked about Notorious way back in the day on this show. And you have that prolonged scene of Cary Grant um, kissing Ingrid Bergman in the hotel room. And it goes on and on, and you get like this kind of growing passion between them and how into each other they are. Oh my. Yeah. Paul Newman and uh, Julie Andrews are as icy together as that ship is without heating. <laughs> <laughs> You've been working on that one, haven't you, sir? 
momentary <laughs> improvisation. It suddenly uh, popped into my head. I was thinking of that glass of ice and how much it made me laugh. All right. Okay. That one was funny. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, I think before we wrap it up and look at the knock list real quick, let's just go to any other final notes we've got. Um, Andrew, anything hanging around you want to mention? Yeah, I think a couple of things that I would bring up. One would be just thinking about East Germany and Germany during this time period. So I think that this is quite interesting. The movie comes out in 66. In 1948, we have the Berlin airlift where the Soviets try to choke off West Berlin. Uh, the Allies have an airlift that manages to break that. We get to 1960, the Berlin Wall is built. Uh, there's real serious tension between East and West. Kennedy has came in, who's, you know, we speak about Paul Newman being a new generation of actor. He's a new generation of president. He comes in, we have the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, there's, there's, there's lots of tension, and everybody knows that if World War III is going to happen, it's going to happen in Berlin, or it's going to be probably precipitated by something that's happening in Berlin or Germany. So I think that that's one part of it that's going on then, you know, we look back at the world now and, you know, it, it, it looks very different. But imagine being Hitchcock at that time where, you know, East Berlin is there and, you know, West Berlin and people are worried that there's going to be a nuclear war. Uh, and then I think the second thing that I would say would be, you know, I I remember I used to hang around with like a, a, a different groups of people, but I would hang around with these people that were really into like, film studies you know that were like really into the aesthetics and you know the, the the theories behind it and so forth and then i would also hang around with some people that were film historians uh, and the two of them approached movies in really different ways and and historians approach movies usually as empirical scolds you know you get you get a rap on the knuckles <laughs> this wasn't true and that wasn't the way that this you know the stasi would really do it or the cia or something so i mean just thinking about it in terms of like what we do here at the museum the looking at the links between popular culture and um the real world of intelligence and espionage so you've got the you've got the uh the the movie is based on or or it's inspired by the defection of Burgess and McLean in 1952. Hitchcock is interested in the McLean's wife, Belinda, uh, Melinda. And then the movie that comes out after this, Topaz, that's that's precipitated by another uh spy. I think it's Topaz. Uh, that's precipitated by another uh real life espionage story. Uh, the Martell affair, which is basically in in France, there's the 1962, just before the Cuban Missile Crisis. There's like a whole um, brouhaha involving the United States and France and the Soviet Union, and but, but I, I won't go into it in depth. But it's quite interesting that this movie and the one that follows it are based on, or or not based on, sorry, but they're their riffs off of what's really happening in the world of intelligence and espionage. Mm. So I think that I think that the sixties are quite an interesting period because of Berlin, because of the Cold War, but also this is an era of spies. This is the same decade that Kim Philby defects to the Soviet Union. Uh, and then I think the other thing that's going on here is if we think about the real world of espionage and intelligence, sending in you know physicists or scientists into 
denied areas, places where it's hard for professional intelligence officers to work. That's not normally what the United States anyway does. Mm. You know, if, if you're trying to get a, a theorem or, or an equation from an East German scientist, you're not going to take a, an across-the-room good-looking guy like Paul Newman, <laughs> drop him into East Germany, you know, and say, go and figure it out, son. You know, that's just not what normally happens. But that that almost doesn't really matter, right? Because Hitchcock's Hitchcock's spy movies are generally not about professional agents. It's about the average person that's caught up in this labyrinthine, bewildering world of intelligence and espionage, and they're trying to they're trying to figure it out, or they're trying to stay alive, or they're trying to you know go from a to b somehow so i think that i think that there's just some really interesting things going on because we're talking about berlin and germany because we're talking about the 60s and then also because we're talking about the real world of intelligence versus the fictional world of intelligence and we're talking also about hitchcock whose whose aim is not fidelity to the real world of intelligence and espionage whose aim is just drama and making movies and in this particular case having a box office hit and you know for people like us to discuss it many years afterwards yeah and it's notable to me at one point uh Koska, uh, paul newman's contact says we're not a political group which to me kind of sums up hitchcock's approach to the entire film <laughs> and why why would it not be a political group? yeah I exactly mean, <laughs> i mean political in the sense that maybe it's not like conservative maybe it's not like democrat versus republican but i mean if it's a underground dissident group it's inherently political right i i will say in uh in respect to that group it did give me a good uh different title for the film which was uh the pie who loved me the pie oh that's good that's good <laughs> but the, but the pie thing is quite interesting because this is a secret society and then this of course loops back to the very early days of Hitchcock and and the spy genre with Thirty Nine Steps, which is mm-hmm. like a you know secret society that's trying to steal British uh, war plans. So I think that you know this this all brings it back full circle because the genre and you know more about this than me, but from what I understand, a lot of this comes from the build up to World War One, the big spy scares and and Britain and America, you know this. Uh, professionalization of intelligence that comes along, you know, 1909, we have the forerunner of MI5 and MI6 set up. Uh, World War One, we have, you know, and afterwards we have the professionalization of intelligence. So I think that just Hitchcock spy movies and this one just map onto a really fascinating period of, of spy history, basically. Mm-hmm. And what I like is I took the mickey at the beginning of this episode for saying we brought on... A- an expert in intelligence and espionage about a film that is completely fictional what you've just said is you were the perfect guest that's right right yeah 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 exactly maybe we did think about this maybe we are geniuses it's hard to hard to say really um cam any notes from you uh just a couple the museum set piece with the footsteps i thought was very strong i thought that was a matte painting i thought that was a matte painting until he walked into it i was like oh that's a place yeah i thought that was a really strong sequence also, I just really laughed at Paul Newman's note to Julie Andrews, gone for a walk, go home. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Oh, that's my outro line sorted. Yeah. <laughs> it would be interesting to see a modern day update, you know, maybe just oh. send a WhatsApp message or something, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> she leaves him on red and you get the one tick. Like yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's a lot of intrigue. Did she? Did he read it or not? I don't know. Oh. Um, my only notes I had left over was, I think in that sort of title sequence at the start, Hitchcock is quite good at having title sequences. Everyone looks really constipated. <laughs> weird looks for everyone as to why they chose those faces but hey ho we'll leave that there but you know go check it out folks and um speaking of alternate titles i did write down a bunch of weird ones the the, the two that were my favorites were uh banged up blinds and uh distressed drapes <laughs> <laughs> apparently when uh newman and andrews arrived in their trailers hitchcock had torn up the drapes Perfect. really wow yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> one quick question before before you guys close out is that is there a macguffin in this movie i'd say it's the formula it's the, yeah, it's the formula that's what i was thinking mm. yeah yeah if it's not a, it's not a good spy film without some sort of uh macguffin or the uh national anthem being played or, or yeah sorry or, or british parliament that's basically our tick list it has to have one of the three yeah yeah um okay well knock list time we have to decide now as the final thing we're going to do here now cam as we have a guest just explain what the knock list is yes the knock list is our tortured acronym for need to see official classics of the spy arts podcast where every week after talking about a movie we decide if it belongs in the pantheon of all-time great spy films so today we're going to vote to see if this one joins some other hitchcock movies like north by northwest the remake of the man who knew too much and the 39 steps yeah, so it's all to play for. Three votes. The guest always goes first. Andrew, what do you think? Yes or no? Is Torn Curtain making the knock list? I like to be optimistic and I like to give people the benefit of the doubt, but I don't think that you can put this in the same category as those movies you just mentioned. Yeah. Unfortunately. I, I, this is your vote. Don't let it be influenced by anyone else. If it's a no, it's a no. That's it's perfectly a no. fine. It's a no. It's perfectly fine. There's still two votes. We could spoil it for you. You never know. <laughs> Cam, over to you. It's a no for me as well. I think there's a reason it's regarded as a lesser or unpopular Hitchcock even. To me, though, it's like if every Hitchcock movie makes the knock list, what's the bar? Yeah. It's just like, oh, this man just achieved greatness every single time. I think it's more interesting to have a master filmmaker who you can look at it and say, hey, this movie's got issues. Why? We learn more from his Hitchcock movies that have struggles, I think, than when you look at, say, uh, you know, North by Northwest. Like, what do you learn from watching that movie? You go, Wow. I don't know how you do that. Whereas this movie, you can go, oh, I understand what the issues are and kind of the pitfalls he fell into trying to make this movie. So for me, it's probably more interesting in some ways to analyze in terms of the mistakes. But uh, yeah, not a knock list movie. Okay, two no's. It's not making a knock list, but here's my vote anyway for those keeping track. Uh, if I ever need to go to sleep, I will pop this on. <laughs> Cold. <laughs> uh, yeah, I the second watch was a pretty rough one, actually, I have to say. The two watch Scott had a lot of trouble with that. But yeah, it's a no from me. It's a great director. This just isn't a great film. Yeah. Well, there you go. Three no's. And as such, Torn Curtain is not making the knock because the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Andrew, sir, thank you for joining us on the show this week um before we let you go i want to hear where people can find you and hear more about you now of course we'll tackle the two things you've got of course you're working at the international spy museum tell us a little bit about that and where it is and where people can find out more yeah absolutely and uh, thanks for having me on this has been a lot of fun 
uh one day we should just have a marathon and do all 12 of the hitchcock spy movies uh just for <laughs> old time's sake um <laughs> so i think the uh yeah so the spy museum we're located in washington dc so perfect location this is one of the global epicenters of espionage because of the, the america's position within the world uh, we have 18 american intelligence agencies as our neighbors the world bank the imf obviously the congress the white house so there's lots of of spy activity in this city so we're kind of well placed in that respect uh it's very easy to find we're in this amazing new building down by the river just off of the mall so the mall where all of the important buildings are just off of and washington dc all of the historic ones as well uh, so we're here we are open pretty much every day of the year except christmas and thanksgiving uh, we are always working hard to try to educate inform and entertain people about the world of intelligence and espionage you can do that by coming here but you know i know washington's quite far away for some people so until then or until you manage to visit um, we have lots of stuff online that you can engage with. So as we mentioned at the beginning, I host the Spy Museum's podcast called Spycast, which has been around for 17 years now, which is wow. like the Jurassic period of podcasting, right? Uh, yeah, you were one of the early podcasters. You've got to yeah. be in that group, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think I think we really are. So we've been around for a long time. We've got just under 600 episodes We've had on everybody from the former former directors of the CIA, like Robert Gates, David Petraeus. Uh, we've had on former head of MI5. Um, we've had on people from uh, Indian intelligence agencies, Australian intelligence agencies, Canadian intelligence agencies. We have on scholars, experts, historians, practitioners, former practitioners. Coming up next week, really a big deal for us. We have a North Korean defector on the podcast. Wow! Now, North Korean defectors are very thin on the ground, and they're very thin on the ground for a whole variety of reasons. One of which is it's kind of dangerous to stick your head above the parapet. So, we have a North Korean defector who's going to be on the podcast next week. We've had Russian defectors on. We've just had all manner of interesting guests, really. Um, so if you want to learn, you know, I think it's a perfect uh, a perfect compliment to to you guys' podcast. Uh, we we tend not to do that much on movies because, you know, we can't do everything. So if you're interested in learning more about the world of intelligence and espionage beside, you know, listening to you guys' podcast, uh, Spycast is out there as well. Uh, we have... Yeah, we have lots of lots of content that I think is pretty unique that you won't find anywhere else. Uh, we also have lots of public programs uh, on YouTube. If you go to our YouTube page, we have lots of really interesting stuff. Uh, coming up in the foreseeable future, in October, we're going to have a five-week uh, special on Israeli intelligence. Uh, so we're going to look at you know that part of the world because we are the International Spy Museum. Um, so the, there's lots going on. There's lots of ways that you can engage with us. And, and the podcast is the probably the easiest way to do it. But if you go to our website, 
if you can get to Washington DC, there's lots of things going on and our sole mission is to try to educate and inform people about this. Frankly, very, very important topic that's frankly very, very misunderstood. There's a lot to un- unpack there. I know, and I can speak on behalf of Cam on this one, that if we ever find ourselves in Washington, D.C., I mean, we are in different countries from America um, right now, but I, that's, I think, number one with a bullet on my list yeah. of places to go is to visit the museum and uh, hopefully bump into you and get the official you know, off-the-books tour. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And uh, in terms of, you know, spy cast you know spy cast and spy hards with a with a spy family out there trying to we're doing it in different ways but we're trying to sort of spread knowledge on these two different sort of subjects that are very well connected there which is you know real life spies and fictional spies but in terms of people finding you you know on social media where can people find you and i assume Spycast is on all sort of major platforms Spycast is on all major platforms. We have a web page. We're part of a small network in the US called the Cyberwire Network. So this is just a, a place where our podcast lives uh, online. So if you go to the Cyberwire slash podcast slash Spycast, you'll, you'll find our podcast. It's available, like you say, everywhere. Apple, Spotify, you know, Podchaser, Podbean, you know, basically everywhere uh so you can find us anywhere you know please dial in subscribe uh all the all the usual types of things if you want to get in contact with me i'm on twitter at spy historian easy to remember so at yeah spy it's historian. a good handle yeah exactly uh and i'm on linkedin as well uh quite a lot of people reach out to me on there um and i'm sure if there's any people that are spycast listeners who are also spy hard listeners uh it'd be interesting to to hear from you as well um yeah that's that's me and that's us and yeah that's what we do wonderful wonderful awesome. well you know there'll be links in the show notes below to everything you've mentioned there and anything else we can find to put in the links as well to save you all googling around you can click the, the sort of notices below and i'll be tagging in spycast and andrew of course in all of our social media this week as well so you can obviously find him through those channels as well but yes andrew it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show it's been great to speak to you guys thanks so much thanks for reaching out and yeah it's been a pleasure thank you no pleasure's all ours thanks well there you go folks that was our chat about alfred hitchcock's 1966 film torn curtain but Cam, the question goes to you, sir. What are we looking at next week? Well, Scott, the Orient Express is back in the news thanks to Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. We're going to catch a ride back to 1948 on that famous train with the kind of comedy spy caper film Sleeping Car to Trieste. Yeah, we've been talking about trains quite a lot in the year 2023, and I can't wait to punch my ticket once again and head off to Trieste. That's right, and this movie is easily available to anyone who would like to watch it. It is on YouTube. We will have a link we'll be tweeting out as well for those that would like to catch it before the review comes out. So keep your eyes out. And uh, yeah, this is going to be a fun movie, I think, to tackle. I always dig, you know, diving into the obscurities on Spy Hearts. Absolutely. So don't sleep on Sleeping Car to Trieste. Your mission, of course should you choose to accept it, is to join us next week as we tackle that very film. Uh, And if you liked what you heard on this episode, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you are listening. And if you do not already, please make sure you follow us discreetly, of course, on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, 
and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, Cam and I are off to look for an American sponsor. 